In the year 2007, Austin Grossman wrote a book about the New Champions, a crime-fighting organization that the government had long categorized with Santa Claus, the Tooth Fairy, and the Pillsbury Doughboy. A mere fantasy, perhaps an idealistic dream for little boys and girls to believe in before growing up and becoming taxpayers. While Grossman claimed his work was a novel, we now know the truth, as the following interview will duly attest. I feel strange that I can't read the early days of the superheroes I love because they don't seem like that. And yet that's what made them who they were. I feel like... So I don't quite know. I feel like superheroes debuted as these sort of archetypical gods. And every once in a while they get retconned back to that just for refreshing, just to kind of refresh them. But I like them... I like them now. I like them when they've had so much layered onto them when their sort of archetypes have been established and that now they can sort of start to live inside them and be a little more human. But I feel like I'm, in liking them that way, I'm caught in some kind of cultural cycle, uh, that that's what I like now. And that 25 years from now, people will like them as archetypes again. So I, I can't really understand why I like them that way. Uh, it's just that I, that I do. I like to feel like they have a consciousness that I, that I could relate to, that I could live inside, and yet are also godlike in some way. So it's more that you feel like there should be some three-dimensional aspect that they almost should, I mean, as you say, more human, so that they can be, you can relate to them more easily? Yes, uh, but, but I can't explain why that is, because people used to relate to them the other way. And I, I don't like to feel like I'm smarter than those people, like those people, those, those idiots, you know, like Superman, when he just kind of whacked people on the jaw and cracked a joke. How dumb must they have been? That can't be the case. Uh, I can't be smarter than they am, but somehow, uh, somehow I'm different, and I like them this way. I just don't want to put on airs about it. Well, could it also be that when superheroes were starting out, and you know, those were the only stories that were being told about them, so because it was a brand new format, that let's start with, let's say, more simple stories, and then with all the layers that have been built on in subsequent years, it's like all that knowledge is automatically almost inborn. Yeah, no, I think you're right. Yeah, they were reading them for the first time. Uh, we are much more knowing readers of, of superheroics, and like we have had time to catch our breath and think about what it must be like to get up in the morning, uh, as well as to sort of, you know, fly around and fight crime. Um, and we're knowing, we're knowing to the medium. Uh, we know the tricks, and so we require a little bit more than that. So, which sort of segs into my next question, which relates to something that Dr. Impossible says fairly early on in the book, which is, you know, all superheroes have an origin and goes on to talk about that in sort of, you know, not so much a straightforward way, but almost in a ironic, yeah, they all have an origin, let's move past that. And was that something you were very conscious that you just wanted to sort of skip all the backstory and go right into the, the story? Uh, it's not... It's not that I wanted to skip the backstory, because obviously I obsessively love the backstory. I wanted to make it clear to readers that we were living in the superhero universe that you know and love. That I wasn't, that I didn't, that I wanted to, I wanted to envision something like the Marvel or DC continuity. I wasn't going to, I wanted to lay the groundwork for what it must be like to live in that world. So, I, But I didn't, I didn't want to have to reinvent that world. I wanted to reference it so people knew where they were. Uh, I guess is the thing. The odd thing about that, of course, is that like, if Dr. Impossible knows the genre in which he is living, like, how can he still be living in it? Like, um, if he's wise to the, 
to the to 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 what to the sort of superhero genre? How can he still be sort of as trapped in it as he is? How can he recycle those? those moments uh, and uh, live through them. Well, it's sort of like saying that we're sitting in Cafe Strata and both of us are mic'd and all of a sudden this world is no longer real, that perhaps the superhero world is real. So what would we do to reconcile that? It's sort of turning that on its ear too. Yeah, I don't know. There's a degree <laughs> to which we're trapped in the world we live even if we know we're in it. Which seems to have a, either a very postmodern or a post-postmodern spin. I'm not really sure what the exact <laughs> terms of that would be. Um, well, let me sort of, let's talk a little bit about Dr. Impossible, because even though he's the villain, he knows he's the villain of the story. He almost, it's like he knew that this was the life that he wanted to, to, be, to be part of. And yet, you know, unlike, I guess, a greater kind of archetypal evil villain, he's very charming. I guess talk a little bit about what your impetus was in creating this, you know, Dr. Impossible as he is in the book. I, you know, it's not an uncommon feeling to... I identify with the villain in the story and I wanted to I wanted to fill that out I wanted to I wanted to write that side of the story um, there's something there's something inescapably fascinating about supervillains especially like and there's something there's something real about that emotional position like if you're for instance you know hypothetically like a graduate student at a major university <laughs> and like you know you're smart, and you've been told you're smart, and you've been told you're smarter than anybody else, but you're still, like, the world totally treats you like a loser. Like, you ought to be, you ought to be ruling the world, and yet you totally, totally aren't. And so, and so there's this, like, manic disproportion between what you think of yourself and the world that totally ignores you and, and treads on you. And, like, that's a real emotional position. And, like, I wanted to write what it was like to live that and like live that to the fullest i.e. to be a supervillain um, that I mean that was the impetus although I came to realize that impetus rather far into the writing like the character first just occurred to me as a voice like years ago like in the certainly in like the 90, 1990s I was driving in LA I was actually working at on a video game and I was driving home from work and like suddenly like that, that voice like occurred to me and like I had a spiral down notebook on the passenger seat as I do and like I started scribbling the things and then I just kind of pulled to the side of the road and like I was going to say did you scribble as you drove or did you have to make sure to actually pull over first a, a sentence or two in I thought to myself okay this isn't going away uh, let's stop the car um, <laughs> yeah so you know you had this voice and then and you said it was in the 1990s and so how long did it take to sort of I guess either write your way in or really sort of develop Impossible into what he became. A really long time. I had the voice and I wrote several versions of it, um, but it was kicking around. It was just it was kicking around as as things do, uh, and you know, and I had you know I had other voices. I had other projects, and um, I mean the business started taking off when I came here to Berkeley to to be in the. English department, uh, and Berkeley doesn't offer an MFA, but they do offer some writing workshops mm -hmm. that you can take if you feel like you want to, like, you know, uh, pick at the wound of your frustrated ambition as a writer. So I did, and, um, and you know, it's a writing workshop, and um, I'm not great with writing workshops, and I kind of wanted to sort of tweak people's noses, so I wrote a story based on Dr. Impossible. Um, 
just to sort of see what the reaction was, and people liked it, and I wrote another one uh, to set aside their stories about their lives as undergraduates. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, uh, and then, you know, I couldn't stop writing stories about this, and I eventually decided to mash them together into a novel, and that's how it, that's how it got started. And then um, I had two or three stories and some notes, and obviously I, then I was in despair about it, so I sent it to my brother, mm -hmm. and he said it was great and that I should finish it. So that's how it started becoming actual a, a serious enterprise. So Impossible came first, and then was it a conscious decision on your part to invent his adversary? Impossible came first, and Fatal was a bunch of paragraphs that I knew lived in the same universe, but obviously weren't Dr. Impossible's. Right. So the question was, whose were they? Uh, so I started to build that character out. Uh, and obviously, and, uh, and I started to build that character out without really knowing what to do with it. Um, but it also became clear that Dr. Impossible spent a lot of time by himself. Uh, so I wanted somebody else who could walk around in that universe and and interact with the other characters in a way that Dr. Impossible clearly couldn't. Uh, and then I got more interested in being a cyborg and being a woman, and like that character took on its own fascination. So that became the other half of the book. I guess also what struck me about Fatal, I mean, there are many things, and I'll get to that in a second, but the mm -hmm. first thing is that she's really brand new to the whole superhero, not yes. so much enterprise, but you know, to what her new vocation, I suppose. And why go with a character who is sort of a neophyte instead of, say, Damsel or uh, Black Wolf, who are veterans. Right. Yeah, who knows the, knows the way around it. Well, I mean, obviously you have the, you have the charm of introducing somebody to a world. Uh, that's always fun. Also because I had gotten so invested in Doctor Impossible and a supervillain, I didn't know if I could write a superhero that I could really believe in and identify. And so I had to write my way into that by writing somebody with superpowers who didn't know if they could be a superhero, per se, uh, and maybe at, you know, in moments had doubts about whether they would, should be a supervillain instead. I had to write my way into convincing myself that that could be a role you could live inside. So Fatal's ambiguities are in some ways your own ambiguities about superheroes in this context. Yes, yes I'm actively taking on the sort of thought process of can I, can I, can I think or, you know, you know, narrate my way into that role. Um, Exactly. And it does sort of end up being very existential because on the one hand she's aligned herself with this group of superheroes but she also recognizes that she may have a link to Dr. Impossible. I just don't want to get into huge spoilers oh, no, of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it, yeah it was very interesting to see how her ambiguous mind formed I guess. And the other thing too that really struck me is she had a very particular voice. I mean, it comes across in that very beginning when she talks about why, how she chose her name. And she's like, well, you know, I was on painkillers at the time. I'm, as you said, it was just a few paragraphs at a time. But was that voice always there, too? It was always there. It was, um, I mean, Dr. Impossible is his own voice. I wanted, yes. And there was, a, there was this new voice that was, yeah, that was clearly not his voice. I wasn't sure what it was. It was a little more sort of depressed. It was a little more sort of numbed. It was a little more normal, if you will. Uh, um, In a matter of speaking. So yes, uh, and yes, and it had it had definitely had more questions about about itself. Um, but yeah, as I said, it, li it still lived in that universe. Um, so I had to figure out what it what it was. Yeah, and I mean with Fatal and also Impossible, but also the whole the group, the champions. Mm -hmm. 
I think what was very interesting about this book is how you sort of played with expectations. The fact that Black Wolf and Damsel used to be married, they were like the Charles and Diana, or I suppose the, now the uh, William and Kate Middleton of uh, superheroes. And it, I mean, just, it seemed, it did seem the whole book was about playing with expectations. And, you know, I just wanted to hear a little bit more about how much of it was deliberate, how much sort of came through. And yeah, well, I had to walk a line because I really love superheroes and I didn't want to I didn't want to deflate superheroes, right? It's easy to make superheroes look ridiculous, right? It's easy to make make them absurd and kind of puncture the superheroics thing, which I clearly didn't want to do. Like I love that universe. I wanted to to live. I didn't want to let the air out of it. My feeling was that I wanted to uh, to admit a kind of a larger emotional range into the into it. Um so I didn't go come in wanting to change expectations. I just wanted to write kind of a larger range of experience into the superhero life um, while still keeping the superhero lifestyle intact. Um, so that was what how I was thinking of it as I was doing it. And I was obviously following Alan Moore and following Frank Miller and following some of the people who are writing right now who are totally amazing like Mark Miller and, and Brubaker and Gail Simone. Um, I mean, shamelessly biting their stuff. <laughs> if the truth is told. It's called but, homage. <laughs> but we, we must be beyond shame. We are artists. Uh, um, so that was how I was thinking of it. I was thinking of it kind of emotionally. Like, let's let's let them feel depressed. Let's let them have a divorce. Let's let them swear. Let, let's let them swear. Let's um, let's give them those moments. But let's still give them the spandex. That's uh, what my feeling was. Or, you know, also just let them adjust. I mean, one of the really interesting scenes and also just descriptions is when Fatale becomes Fatale. And just the idea that she wakes up and suddenly she's 178 pounds heavier and having to adjust to this new body. Right, right. Yeah, living on those bodies. That was the great privilege of writing in prose instead of a graphic novel, I felt, was to be able to narrate from inside those bodies uh, and to... to um, you know, to, to, to write, uh, write all the senses, you know? Uh, uh, you know, I mean, uh, s s uh, people writing comics get, to get, get the dialogue boxes and they get the thought balloons, but, like, but it's a kind of a cheat, a kind of a hack that they don't get to indulge in very much. But as a novelist, of course, you get to do it, you get to do it all the time. You get to write, uh, you get to do all this descriptive stuff. Uh, uh, and especially to work, work the non-visual sense, senses. Uh, that, I felt, was the great advantage I had uh, as a novelist um, versus the great, great disadvantage I had as a novelist, not being able to show where people were standing all the time uh, and so forth. Well, I actually just got this book recently. Uh, Max Allen Collins, along with Terry Beatty, did a book called A Killing in Comics, where it's primarily in prose, but Beatty also had illustrations accompanying it. And... I haven't read it yet, but I'm very curious to see how the mix of prose and illustration is going to work. Did it ever even occur to you that perhaps you could get someone to illustrate these characters? Uh, it did occur to me. That was a debate we had um, at Pantheon when we the, on the first meeting. Do we want to illustrate the characters at all? And the decision was no. Like we're doing prose. Let's go with that. You know, let's uh, uh, let's um, let's uh, let's go all the way with that. Let's not. You know, let's let's not scoop the reader's imaginations. Interestingly, uh, the UK edition is being illustrated, and I actually have 
some of the illustrations on my laptop. Oh, really? Uh, right here. Not they're not done. Um, but um, there was a there was a bit of a, a, a closed circle that happened because as I was writing it, I was a super huge fan of the Ultimates and the Authority, which were illustrated by Brian Hitch, <laughs> and I frankly. Uh, stole a bunch of his character <laughs> concepts. Uh, less said about that, the better. Uh, but we, when we did, went to the UK edition, they were like, we want illustrations. And they were like, who do you like? And I said, Brian Hitch. And they got Brian Hitch. Brian Hitch is illustrated in the UK edition. That may be, that may not be public knowledge, um, but it is public knowledge now. Uh, he's uh-huh. doing amazing illustrations for it. That's fantastic. Uh, so It's, it's so fantastic. He's doing the cover and he's doing a, a bunch of interior illustrations. And I have like four or five of them. And they're incredible. So it wasn't about stealing, it was being prescient. Uh, uh, <laughs> yes. That, let's let's say that. Let's say that. Shall we? It's a it's a retcon. Um. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, I mean, one of the things too with you know superheroes coming from comics and the like is that they tend to be in series and repeating characters. And certainly, Suno will be invincible. Has the element that in theory some of the characters might come back. Is that something that's on the horizon, or is it really a standalone entity? Um, I think about it. I mean, the lovely thing is that, uh, is that it's a big universe with tons of overlapping stories happening all the time. Uh, so, um, so it clearly has room for more stuff. And I'm thinking about it, and I don't know what I'm going to do next. Um, it's clear that whatever I want to do next could fit into this universe. Uh, and I think about I think about doing the prequel. I think about doing the the uh, 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 the original champions, you know, uh, and doing their whole story in exactly the same way. I think about Baron Ether a lot. Uh, I kind of had trouble uh, stopping writing this book and like like drawing a line under it. Um, I I flat out don't know what I'm doing next, but it's it's a very good possibility I'll do something here. I don't know. I mean, are, isn't literature not supposed to have sequels? Like, right? Like, it kind of begs the question of is it a genre book or a literary book, right? Should there even be such a distinction, though? I don't know. That is a big question. I mean, look at John Updike. One could argue he's writing a series or he's written a series. Sure, yes. Or Richard Ford. Totally. But, like, yes. I mean, the joke is, you know, Moby Dick, the sequel. Like... (laughs) Uh, uh, Ahab's Return, etc., etc. Like that makes it sound like a genre book. I don't know what we're dealing with now. We're whatever. It's the 21st century. We're totally hosed if we try to talk about these distinctions. <laughs> then we end up going into genre wars and you know causing endless debates and, and the like. Yes, let's let's not. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, sort of t- related to that question, because we have Impossible, and in some ways it could be seen that he's in a bit of a loop because he's in the supervillain motif and he's constantly fighting battles and, and he knows that by and large he's going to lose them. So then it brings up the question, well, if you know you're going to lose, why do you keep trying? And that just is a fascinating question in general. So. Yes, I, you know, that, that's what make, makes characters... I mean, yes, comic book characters are, are always being denigrated because they're serial and they repeat themselves, but, like, that's what makes them real to me. Like, that's what makes them, like like believably neurotic to me is that they obsess and they and they and they and they repeat and they can't stop doing what they're doing Batman's parents are dead he's got to go out there every night and he's got to like reiterate his origin every night and like that strikes a real emotional note to me uh frankly uh 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 you 
you know, you keep you keep doing what you're doing. So yes, Impossible is always repeating himself. He's always fighting these impossible fights. Uh, you know, he's going to come back. He's going to try and take over the world. Um, that is n nothing like a stretch for me as far as emotional truth is concerned. That's just how things are for a lot of people. Where they have a certain task that they keep wanting to try it and try it. And even if they don't succeed, they'll keep trying. Yes, yes as Beckett said, try, fail, try again, fail better. Uh, that's, um, you know, that's where it is. Uh, well, that could just be extended to writing in general. I mean, you were saying before that you didn't know where to stop this book. Where there are a lot of mm -hmm. sections or pages that had to be cut out and rewritten. And, you know, how different was, say, the first draft of this book to the version that will be released in about a month's time? Um, uh, it was qu quite different. I d there were so many, so many drafts and half drafts and, and, and you know, and version 3.1s that I, I scarcely know. Uh, um, the voice was always the same and some of the core chapters were always the same. There used to be a lot more characters uh, that kind of collapsed into each other. Chapters were reordered. Things that were what used to be flashback ended up happening in real time. Uh, the plot used to make even less sense than it does. Barely got something that looked like a plausible or at least related sequence of events happening forward in time. I managed that. Uh, there were a lot of changes. Uh, there were a lot of cuts. Uh, mm -hmm. Arguably not enough. Uh, we shall see. Yes, excesses were toned down. Um, shall we say. Um, but I don't know. What is it about if not excess? <laughs> I guess that's true. But uh, just to go back to characters, because certainly some characters, aside from Fatal and Dr. Impossible, you know, really, we learn quite a, a great deal about them, be it Corfire, um, Damsel, Black Wolf, mm -hmm. and the rest of the Champions crew. And then you have, you know, little incidental characters who come in, and they may make a one-line appearance, but they almost seem like they could have been so much more. You added their entire life into that one line, I suppose. Um, yes, it's all, it's all about the cameos. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, um, but that's what I love about reading an evolved uh, superhero continuity, which is that, like, uh, you know, any DC or Marvel comics, even the walk-on characters, if you go on Wikipedia, you see that they, have a whole, they had a whole life, you know, uh, that you're seeing just a little bit of. It's all about the supplementary characters, and some people, I have to admit, really complain about that. And there's something... Complain there's something, how? There's something... Um, like, what, you know, why do I care about that one <laughs> character that came on, who was made of ice, you know? Like, forget it. What happened next with Fatal? Uh, and uh, I don't know. That may, that may be a little bit of a sort of geek litmus test. Uh, it will be interesting to see when the book comes out whether that people love that or, or, or hate that. Um, uh, but surely if you invest in the world, you like like those characters. Come on. <laughs> That's very true. But, you know, you brought up geeks in general. And one of the things that I'm not the only one to be thinking about, but it certainly seems to be on many people's minds, is sort of the so-called mainstreaming of geek. And the idea that superheroes or other characters and like that come from, say, comic books, and that tradition are now suddenly in prose form or even in literary formats. So... Is it just, say, a generational thing that the people who grew up on comics are more accepting of blurring the lines? Um, 
of you know treating certain subjects that may have been considered marginalized as much more you know out in the open yeah what's what is happening with that it's an excellent question uh you know we had we had Cavalier and Clay, and yes. you know people were like threw up their hands and said, "Oh my God, someone put comic book characters in literature." Can this be true? Um, uh, uh, and then we have Fortress of Solitude. Um, what can I say? Like, nerds are nerds are a demographic. They're an American experience, like any other marginalized American experience. They shall have their their day in the literary world. They shall have their representation. Uh, it's an experience that will be that's 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 got to be written because it's being lived, right? Um, we've had chick lit, we've had whatever other lit. We actually shall have geek lit. Uh, I am proud to carry that forward. Uh, uh, <laughs> You'll be the patron saint of geek lit. I think it already has its saints, but I perhaps I I, I can just be one of its um, acolytes or canons, whatever you are before you're a saint. <laughs> so then the cardinal, I suppose, if we're going to get into um, typing and the like. <laughs> but um, I know that I understand you recently did a panel at New York Comic Con, which sort of talked about, I guess, superheroes in literature. And, you know, why are there more writers who are embracing these characters and, you know, turning them into prose? You have people like, I mean, one person that I talked to recently is Dave Schwartz, whose book is coming out next year. And he mentioned a lot of things to the um, with that one of the things that attracted him was the idea of you know talking about superheroes in a mundane fashion but and this becoming a two-part questions but first let's go back to you know why are there more people gravitating towards it's it, it a really good question because we're obviously like far from the first generation to have a, had a childhood of superheroes there's so many people who had who had childhoods of superheroes but but did not turn it into a realized literary form so why us I mean, I personally can only can only point to the year 1986, the year of Watchmen and Dark Knight Returns, right? That just completely turned my imagination on its ass. You know, when I read those, you know, I like I read this with my mouth open. I was like, oh my god, can I really be seeing this? Like that that just sort of transformed my imagination of superheroes. Like I blame that. Uh, so I, I I've had that. Uh, I've had that weighing on my imagination for 20 years, like, and I had that to work from. I had those giants, the shoulders of which to stand on, or fix that sentence. Shoulders uh, of giants, yeah, I think, uh, okay. I, I had those giant shoulders to stand on. Uh, I, I, I can't speak for other people. That's kind of the why for me, you know? Um, I, uh, without them, I would not have been able to think about and sort of live in superheroes the way I had so that's my why now. Um, there are a bunch of whys. Obviously, we had the whole we had the whole computer internet thing. Like the geek sector became a more visible visible segment of society. So it's only natural that its literary representation should follow, I suppose. But uh, you know, it would be unwise of me to 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 go on an unlicensed sociological speculative rant uh, uh, I shouldn't think <laughs> well, that doesn't mean you can't if you don't want to but uh. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I can't think why someone didn't do it before I can't think of why it didn't happen before because it felt so necessary to me 
that I had to have it, you know, mm -hmm. that I had to think of superheroes this way, and it was a way of getting stuff out there for me. Um, why someone else didn't need that before, I can't even tell you. Uh, certainly, as I was writing the book, I thought to myself, I got to do this fast because somebody else is going to be doing it. This is so, so what I feel needs to happen. Um, uh, it felt so necessary. Uh, mm -hmm. No, it's a very good answer. But one thing that struck me in your answer is you brought up 1986, and you would have been in your, I guess, mid to late teens at that point. So is it just a function of convergence that these comics all came through at a time when you were most easily impressionable and the like? And the only reason I bring that up, too, is because Kurt Vonnegut died recently, and one thing that kept being brought up over and over is how his work was embraced by teenage males. So is it sort of that same thing happening? It is a good question. Um, once again, I feel this has um, been gestating a long time. Um, I mean, my first experience of superheroes was, I think, the Super Friends cartoon, the Hanna-Barbera one. And uh, that was like a weird, that had a, that made a really powerful impression on me. Like it was a bunch of superheroes that like seemed to live together in a house <laughs> or something. And I did not fully differentiate it from the normative experience of what grown-ups must must live like so that was a pre-impression um, and you would have been how old at that point I would have been four or five I can't even remember when that exactly aired uh, but certainly quite quite early um, and I you know I read Jonathan Lethem's the, the disappointment artist and him writing about how formative co those comics were for him and how Philip was for him and I felt the same way about slightly different authors like Larry Niven uh, uh, and whoever else was and Rogers and Lasney and I'm uh, Jesus uh, Dungeons and Dragons was like a 1977 experience we cannot fully say why the things that formed us formed us <laughs> <laughs> only that they were there at the time that we needed them and it just means that 20 or 25 years later you can say, yes, it was these particular experiences that informed my writing, and I can say that with absolute confidence. Right. There is a kind of alchemical fusion that happens, and, uh, and it happened that way for us. Uh, uh, and, the, you know, the experience of being a, like a suburban white teen in like a sort of high-tech suburb of Massachusetts, you know, that has its own thing, cause it, because we had computers early, and we had the, the, the fact that we lived in the suburbs and everybody was sort of, instead of... If I lived in New York, I would have been out in the streets meeting people more, but we were all in our own houses, like, bubbling and gestating with the books we brought home from the library. You know, it's all a mix that fused us. No, it's very true. <laughs> you know, I'm not trying to make a big deal of Super Friends because it has <laughs> pros and cons, but it's interesting you bring that up as a really formative experience because it's that group effort. And in Soon I Will Be Invincible, you have this group that you've created, the Champions. So I guess, what is it about superheroes and groups that was a particular, particularly attractive? Yeah, no, I love that thing. I love that most, most of all. Um, I remember in the superheroes and literature panel, uh, the other two panelists talked about liked, liking to write about superheroes in, in isolation. They liked the mythological archety archetype of super, Superman when he's the mo when he's the only superhero in the world. Uh, but like, I'm just the reverse. I like it with lots of superheroes. The fact that like. You know, Batman and Superman and Aquaman and and uh, Wonder Woman had to had to like be in the same house. Like makes them that much more like 
crazy and interesting. The fact that the super, like that, that the cyborg has to talk to the fairy and has to talk to the wizard or, or the vigilante with no powers, or from the guy from the future or the robot. Like the fact that those people have to talk to each other, like makes them so much more interesting to me. Like that friction, that charge that comes comes up when those people have to assimilate one another's worldviews. You know, it's like when you go to college and your roommate is from a totally different place, and like you have to somehow make that work. Um, the fact that these people had their own sort of, I mean, and it's crazy because it comes out of like, it comes out of like these, uh, the, these, these corporate acqu acquisitions when the people who owned Superman bought whoever else they bought, you know, it's totally haphazard. And like they team them up as like a marketing effort or something. Um, but there's some kind of charge or tension that comes about when you put Superman and Batman together. Uh, or, uh, um, uh, you know, or Batman and Green Lantern, you know, the fact that the, um, uh, those people has the, have, the, have the sort of realized personalities that, that came out of the, like, their deep backstory. Um, it's just, well, I mean, it's really funny, for one part. Like, it's, totally, it's just really funny. Like, you could do funny stuff all day long with that. But, like, there's something real to me about that as well. Like, how to, how to put it, you know? Um, you know, like when you're living in New York, and everybody who lives in New York is a transplant, you know? They had their own wacky origin that drove them to come to New York uh, and, 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 and live in Brooklyn. And, like, <laughs> and you know, it's basically like they were from, from, you know, the year 3000. And, like, you were, like, a kid who stumbled on a magic gem in a forest. And, like, you ended up talking to each other anyway because you both show up there and work in publishing. Like, it's, it's that, it's... I don't want to stress that... I don't want to push the metaphor too far, but it, sure. it's that strange, you know, and it's that interesting. Well, it comes down to creating instant conflict, doesn't it? That you're throwing various entities of vastly different personality types and origins and backgrounds and stories and like mashing them up, and what do you get? Yes, um, yes, and you got like a lot of cool stuff, and it's like a comedy of manners too. Like, you know, you still have to get that cyborg to pass the potatoes, you know, like uh, at, at the at the dinner table, like it's the importance of being impossible. <laughs> um, a play about secret identities. Uh, <laughs> you could see why I had to work to make myself stop writing that novel, because you could just do so much. It really could just spin out of control, I guess. Well, I guess let's talk... I mean, it, all, it all, almost always comes up in, in any conversations about superheroes, but just, you know, the nature of, of identity and wanting to be something that you're not or someone greater than you, or, I mean let's take impossible because many of the scenes in the book reflect back to his high school and college days when clearly he's an outsider and he's struggling to make friends and he's you know not so much idolizing but certainly admiring of certain characters and you know because he keeps coming back to that obviously this is of great significance in his life of wanting to be anything unlike that kid yes where to go with that like I want it I mean Yes, that's a, I mean, it's a real situation and I wanted to, I wanted to just run with that. Like, take a person like that who would, in real life, end up as a sort of frustrated, pathetic adult and just kind of like, you know, push them, push them through the looking glass. Like, um, let's make that actually happen. Let's, like, let's make those, like, extreme emotions that, that one actually has turn into an extreme persona let's like let's turn that person inside out and like 
make them the person they feel like they are. If there were any justice in the world, like when you feel that strongly about, about stuff like that, it should actually give you superpowers. It should manifest in the real world. You should actually catch on fire or like rise into the air or physically glow because those feelings are so extreme. Like, let's make that actually happen. Let's make literal manifestations of everything. Yeah, and like, feel. dude, like I walk around all the time with crazy stuff in my head and like nobody can see it. Like, I might as well be like a crazy superhero, frankly, <laughs> for like, for like all that I feel like that people do not suspect, you know, the crazy person I must be uh, after I, you know, you know, go home and go into my underground lab. In underground lab where you create fiction. No, exactly. Exactly. Like, writing about superheroes is the only way to write realistically about, about actual people, at least as I know them. <laughs> um, well, which is a very interesting way to put it. Um, I don't want to keep you too much longer, but there's two separate things that I do want to touch on before wrapping this up. And one is, you come from a video game background. And I guess it, I wanted to sort of get into... You know, how different, if at all, is working, let's say, on superhero-type characters in a video game um, environment as opposed to a comics environment? I just wondered if there was any, I don't know, differences or changes and the like. And also, coming from video games and moving to prose, what are the similarities and differences? Um, well, I'll take the first part first. Uh, I mean... There aren't actually very, very, there are actually very few video games about superheroes. Uh, we used to speak, in fact, of a curse uh, because there were so few video games uh, about superheroes and a couple that had been done had come to grief. Obviously there are some, but they used to, they, people used to want to make a Champions game for so long. Champions, I never thought about that. Um, you know, the Champions, the role-playing system. Yeah. Uh, uh, people, they tried to make a game out of that for so long. And, 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 um, the problem with making video games about superheroes is that like it's so hard to establish a baseline reality uh, uh, in video games. All video game characters move like superheroes, right? So it's harder to, 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 to feel that contrast. Obviously people are getting getting better at it. Uh, this was when I, my head is still in 1995 when I talk about this problem, but like since then there have been plenty of good uh, video games. I was going to say there have been remarkable advancements certainly on the technological side. Yes. Yes, and uh, a game like Crackdown now, you know, uh, works really well with that stuff. Um, uh, and obviously, it's, it's, you know, as we're getting, with the technology we're getting now, it's a perfect genre, because you have, you know, Grand Theft Auto-like cities and physics and, and so forth, and you can finally do that stuff. It's actually really great. Um, uh, where was I? Oh, I'm sorry. The, only, the other part <laughs> of the question that I had was just... Um, moving from video game to uh, literature because oh, right. one thing I've also noticed is that there are more people coming out of that background. I mean, off the top of my head, I can think of Naomi Novik with her Temeraire oh, series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I totally feel like we're bonded in some way. And uh, uh, Cody McFadden, who's now doing serial killer thrillers. Oh, I, I didn't know that. Yeah, Naomi Novik was the only person I thought of. Uh, I worked on, I worked a little bit on uh, Neverwinter Nights too, actually. So we're even bonded at that level. Yeah, it's it's funny. Um, video games were kind of my my MFA uh, or my substitute for an MFA. Uh, I could talk for hours about the subject, uh, but it's it's a relief uh, in many ways because, of course, uh, 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 you can't write, you can't put very many words into 
a video game because everyone's just going to click through those pages of text because they want to move around and, and break stuff. Uh, so video working video games was good for me because you had to you had to learn to pick your words and think about your effects. Uh, uh, it, it was nice to write an novel and be off the leash for a while into just how much verbiage I could s spew. Mm -hmm. uh, video games was a good proving ground for me. It beats you down some. It gives you some humility. It's a medium that doesn't that uh, is when it knows what it's doing, it's very much without pretension. You know, you'd write stuff and the question would be, you know, is it cool? Are people going to sort of get off on this, you know? You, you, you know, it was, there was a very sort of P.T. Barnum kind of anti-pretension going on, you know, because you we're not given any room to pontificate, you know? Uh, you really just had to figure out a reason why the demons were coming out of the portal and then back off, you know, and, uh, uh, and let people play. Um, obviously, it, it gave me a, a nice fluency in, in, in pulp genres and it you know it obviously there are huge sort of formal problems in storytelling in video games so it's a great boot, boot camp uh, in those issues you know how do you do exposition uh, how do you tell a good story while letting the player do what they want and not feel hemmed in uh, it, it was it's good because also because you get edited your editors are programmers uh, and they are very unpretentious people and very exacting readers. So they will, they are very, and they're very smart. So they will not be merciful and they will cut out anything that's kind of like bullshit in your writing. Uh, uh, it was a good experience on that level too. So they have a good detection, they have a good detector for any Yeah, they, I mean, you know, they don't have any of that ingrained tolerance for that stuff that grows up in, in humanities departments, you know? <laughs> they just know you're filling because you have nothing to say. Uh, and they'll call you on it. Uh, well, how much of it is a video game environment collaborative? As a, I mean, is it what I guess what comes to mind is is it like, you know, working on a screenplay where there's many, or on a TV show where there are many cooks in the pie, so to speak, and then when it's working right, it's it's really really collaborative. I was fortunate enough to start at a, a company called Looking Glass Studios, uh, where there was a very sort of tight gelling between people. Like there was a very, I mean, everybody was really smart. Everybody. We were just starting to do 3D games. Everyone was really excited about it. Everyone knew what kind of games we wanted to make, uh, uh, and so th there was a there was a really really great group mind happening. Uh, team to team, it varies how collaborative it is. Obviously, sometimes you're working on a licensed property, so the story is kind of set. Sometimes, you know, the team just isn't very tightly gelled. People are off in one office or another office, and you're the writer, and they just sort of sit you down and say, "Start typing," and you know, whatever. Well. We'll stick it into the to the levels once it's done. Uh, when it's working right, it's very very collaborative. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, put it that way. When the medium gets better, it will be more and more collaborative. Uh, the, obviously, the film industry is a lesson to us that you can do high art in a in a very constrained, very collaborative medium. That said, it was nice to do a novel and do my own show for a while. But I miss it though. I miss going to an office and having other people who care about what you're doing. Uh, obviously, when you're writing a novel, nobody gives a damn. <laughs> uh, or at least uh, nobody beyond your no, you know, cer uh, hand-picked circle of people, so to speak. There are even members of that hand-picked circle whose loyalty I at times suspected. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but yes, nobody cares if you, if you don't sit down and write your pages that day. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, I want to go back and do games now. Uh, I would like to do a cool game. Do you have any, sp any ideas or specific plans or it's just more I want to do cool well, I have a bunch of people I'd like to work with, and at any given time, I could probably con them into letting me work on their stuff. I would really like to take some of the writing lessons I did got 
from the novel back into the games, uh, it's hard to work collaboratively. And like, I don't know if I can, where exactly I can get back into harness now that I have run free and had creative control. My fantasy was, of course, that the book will do really well and someone will say, wow, you're smart and you can author your own IP. Like, let's do a video game and, you know, have it be writer-driven and, and fun. That's obviously a fantasy for a couple of years. Well, I may just do a really small game uh, mm -hmm. with... Uh, I've talked to a guy about this, actually, uh, about just sort of licensing his technology and doing a, a small... Uh, adventure game probably in, in 2D and just have it be really creatively crafted and interesting and kind of push the medium in that direction. Uh, obviously it needs to be pushed. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, I kind of, right now I'm kind of a backer of the indie scene in games, you know. Uh, I think we may have to push it outside the corporate walls for a while. I kind of hope I get an opportunity to do that off of writing uh, this book and rolling in the filthy lucre that may result in that. <laughs> Um, not, I'm knocking wood. Yes. <laughs> um, my final question to you is, what prompted you to pursue a graduate degree in 19th century literature? Well, uh, that's also a good question. Parents are English professors, so it was always in the back of my mind that uh, they would curse me to their dying day unless I got a PhD. Uh, but honestly, I am, um, you know, I, I, was, I was about 30, 31. Uh, I'd worked in video games for a while. I wanted my intellectual life back. I wanted... Working in video games is great, but but uh, you're in a universe whose history is only 25 years old. Like <laughs> I wanted to reconnect with something older than that. I knew that in video games we're always retelling stories, and we're always telling stories that are kind of cut down, pastiche, you know, 20th generation versions of old epics and sagas. And I wanted to know what those were and how we got there. And you know, I don't know. I just felt like there was another side to me that I that like. I mean, and and. I love video games, but it's a fairly insular world. Mm -hmm. I knew that if I wanted to live in another world, uh, uh, I should probably take my chances. Uh, uh, t take my chance while I could. Um, and, uh, you know, I'd love to teach. Uh, I taught at Columbia last year, and it was kind of awesome. They're easier about letting you teach if you have a PhD. Um, and I like, whatever, I like to read. I like to be in libraries. They let me be in a library all day long, uh, in, in, you know, as a grown-up in graduate school like it feels wrong and like I'm getting away with something but apparently that's how the system works so uh, why not be in graduate school well, what sane person would be elsewhere <laughs> <laughs> uh, as someone who did graduate school and left I'm, I'm not as inclined to go back but I do see um, the appeal of I guess perpetual academia or put it this way I don't I don't really have to go on the academic job market when I'm done true uh, so, Which is a very different as opposed to being on that particular rat race. Yeah, so I'm kind of having my cake and eating it too. But the cake, the cake tastes good. I like the cake. <laughs> and on that note, <laughs> I think we're going to wrap it up. Thanks so much, Austin. It was a great interview.